This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. People who are consuming comedy, some of them don't want to hear that shit. That don't mean you can't say it. That don't mean you can't perform it. But if somebody decides they don't want to hear that shit, and then they tell a venue they don't want to hear that shit, and enough people gang up on that venue and go, hey, we don't want to hear that shit, at the end of the day, it's a business. It's a business. And I think that a lot of comedians are assuming the right to venue and not the freedom and not the right to. You have freedom of speech. You don't have freedom of venue. There is this exhausting conversation taking place among a group of people that usually are able to bring a certain amount of levity and perspective to things. So needless to say, I'm surprised that these group of people are being active participants in this conversation. So you have a lot of comedians right now talking about cancel culture, making it seem like cancel culture is a gang roaming the streets, making them clean up their language and go to church every Sunday and eat all their broccoli. But thank God for today's guest, my man, comedian Roy Wood Jr., who is a correspondent for The Daily Show with Trevor Noah. He's done a ton of stand up and is one of the best follows on Twitter at Roy Wood Jr. For those who don't know. Now, Roy has a reasonable perspective on how standards for comedians have changed. Uh, we're also going to discuss his work on The Daily Show and what it was like sharpening his comedy skills in the South. I also want to talk to him about his infamous prank calls. And if you haven't heard a Roy Wood Jr. prank call, go to YouTube, search breast reduction. Thank me later. Roy Wood Jr. is up next on Jamel Hill is Unbothered. Roy, I've been looking forward to having you on the podcast for a really long time. And I'm so happy we are finally able to sit down and fellowship and just bask in our Negroness. Because I just have a feeling that this next, however long this lasts, is about to be super-ass ignorant. May I just say that you are one of my most favorite follows on Twitter. Am I? And I know that there aren't Twitter awards for best tweeting and best clapbackery and best shutting down ignorance. But I would win? Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. Well, see, but you would... The reason I love following you is because you often make... The observations about life that I feel that we all need, you know, like you recently <laughs> were tweeting about how you realize a lot of your child favorite childhood video games, they was really on some MAGA, let's take the country back. <laughs> yeah, yo, it's so many video games from the 90s that it's just two white men walking the streets beating up criminals. Yeah. 
it's basically that, that's that was it. <laughs> yeah, it was it, it bad was, dudes, double dragon, like all of these video games where you just yeah, we gotta go and take back the thugs. Yeah, but I didn't. I hadn't thought of that until you know you tweeted that out, and I I depend on you for those kind of observations to bring to my life. That's my goal. My goal in life is to present the weird perspective on the thing that you thought you already knew something about. I have no opinions on A or B. Like, whatever both sides of the issue are, I'm just looking for the third angle Mm. on the thing. So, that's a perfect segue uh, to one of the many things I wanted to talk to you about. Uh, As you said, you're looking for the third angle, right? And so, as many people know, the craze that swept the nation was the Popeye's chicken sandwich. Okay? <laughs> sandwich. Sandwich. You You're can't right. say sandwich. You're right. Sandwich. The sandwich, because it was some sandwich-like behavior trying to get this uh, sandwich, right? What a trifling corporation. But continue. <laughs> yeah, they are trifling, because Popeye's recently tweeted, because supposedly the reason that they <laughs> ran out of chicken sandwiches wasn't about the chicken. They didn't have enough buns. <laughs> so they tweeted out that if you bring your buns to Popeyes, that you can get on for a chicken sandwich. And I'm like, what kind of shit is this? That's your mama, baby. You don't need to go to Popeyes. Mama make you, mama, mama make you a chicken sandwich. Baby. Mine bring, is better than Popeyes. Bring some bread over here. It's like the old Eddie Murphy joke to make McDonald's joke. Yes, yes. Like that is hands down one of the most ghetto things. But what would you expect from other than Popeyes? I actually would have expected that from churches. I would not have expected that from Popeyes. Churches ain't got a Twitter account. (laughs) (laughs) I respect churches is low key like the candy lady of fast food. It's just no advertising, no commercials, but you just know they're there. You're right. And you know it's good and everybody knows to go over there. Yeah, but that that was peak trifling uh, for Popeyes because I think I tweeted this. I was like, so they basically turned into the dude at the club with the airbrush background <laughs> taking photos, $10 a pop. Like, what are we, like, they just they basically they, have turned into that. They got to figure out a way when the sandwich comes back to get the hype back up for it because they missed the window. Yeah. They, on some serious, like, fumble the bag type shit, they fumbled the bag. Yeah. Or, or could it be part of a, a larger plan to keep the demand high because they made it, they made you feel like you had to get in on this sandwich. You had to try it. It's a sandwich. It ain't a pair of Jordans. <laughs> See? It, we ain't talking about But lazies. it's the Jordan of sandwiches. It is the Jordan <laughs> of sandwiches. That so so to that end, because, Roy, you are a comedic genius— you decided that you were going to capitalize on this craze sweeping the nation and create your own digital series basically out of this. So the CSC, yeah, Chicken Sandwich Coalition. Um, <laughs> explain what it is. I'll play a clip. You so, explain what the Chicken Sandwich Coalition that you created out of this Popeye's so madness. The conversation I had with a friend of mine was that Popeye's basically like it's like the dope game. Like, Popeye's came in with a new sandwich, a new product that was uncut. It was pure. The dope fiends was going crazy for it. It was Frank Lucasen. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So what would the other dope boys, what would that conversation be of all the other dope boys, i.e. other fast food spots that sell chicken sandwiches, how they going to handle Popeye's? Do we kill them? Do we add them to the co-op like Prop Joe and The Wire? So I made this series. And it was supposed to just be one episode. It was supposed to be one episode, and there's Chick-fil-A and McDonald's and Burger King, Shake Shack, anywhere that sells a decent chicken sandwich, having a meeting about Popeye's. I post that one video, and it's literally just me with my hand just slightly off camera moving chicken sandwiches around because I'm a father. 
I'm a, I'm a grown man with nothing to do in a hotel room for four days. I was in Albuquerque when I shot this. And I put the video up. It did well. And I was like, huh, well, let's see. What if I did another one? What was the continuation of this? What would happen if Popeyes and rallies teamed up to go against the coalition? You mean checker rallies? Yeah, checker rallies. Yeah, checker slash rallies. Checker slash rallies, right. <laughs> so it just started rolling and rolling. And then the next thing I knew, I, then I found out, and I didn't know this, that Burger King and Popeyes are owned by the same Canadian company, Restaurant Brands International. So in researching Popeyes, I found that out about Burger King, and I go, oh, well, Burger King's in the coalition. What if Burger King is really a spy for Popeyes, but within the coalition and Burger King and Popeyes real plot twists? So I'm like, hey, I got to do another episode. So pretty much every three days, I drove around whatever city I was in, and I would buy 12 different sandwiches and use those were the actors, essentially. I know this sounds crazy, but it just it made me laugh, and I'm just at a point career-wise where – you do the Daily Show, you do your stand-up, but you know what? I'm going to go and do some goofy shit. This makes me laugh. All right. Well, for those who haven't heard uh, and, or ha- haven't heard slash seen an episode of CSC. The Coalition. We all we got, uh, CSC, Chicken Sandwich Coalition. Here's a clip uh, from this new series that Roy just created in his hotel room in Albuquerque. People fighting in the street for this sandwich. It's bad for business. I need more chicken. I just made a move on the coalition. I can't hold these corners without more products. This is Popeyes. Call the Colombians and see if they got something. I need to call you back. This is Rallies. Checkers. It's Rallies now. You need to pick one. Give me one reason why I shouldn't kick your double name ass off this counter right now. I know why you can't get all the chicken you need. Somebody's setting you up. And what do you want for it? I want to roll with you. So, Roy, you a special person. <laughs> because now, so that that we we taped that when Popeyes announced that they were out of chicken. So the the thought was, what if McDonald's was the one that cut off the supply, and now Popeyes ain't got no more chicken because McDonald's is hating. And I really believe, in in the real world, I really believe that that type of low down dirtiness goes on in the fast food game. Because think about it, if you if I'm McDonald's and I'm buying all my chicken from you, and I find out you also selling the Popeyes. Oh, player, I ain't going to buy no more chicken from you. So who you going to support if you the chicken supplier? Where you put a lot of thought into this. I Listen, I'm telling you, man, it's shady. It is. It's but, shady. but the comparison to the dope game is not, is not that far off. It's I mean, 100% it's, the dope it's game. It's not that far off. It's product. It's demand. Supply. Yeah. It's all that. It's Stringer Bell taking the class at the junior college. Elastic and inelastic products. I want to know who's Slim Charles. Hey, who, uh, who's Snoop? <laughs> uh, I don't know. I know that Bojangles' his brother moves on. For Ooh. sure. Just coming in and trying to kill everybody. Yeah. <laughs> that's his job. Oh, my goodness. Well, yeah, it, It's it, fun to take stuff that's happening in the real world and figure out a way to put a joke to it. It definitely speaks to uh, the level of uh, creativity that you have. So um, tell everybody, uh, well, I'll say this real quickly before we get into your origin story. I came across you because um, I was listening to The Foxhole, uh, Jamie Foxx's, oh. yeah, Jamie Foxx's uh, former comedy network, which, you know, Kevin Hart has something similar called Laugh Out Loud Network. On XM. Yeah. On, uh, on, on uh, satellite radio. So I was just flipping around one day, and then it was a a prank call. I thought it was actually a real call, right? And I was just <laughs> like, what is going on? And I was laughing my ass off. <laughs> and so I started listening to the Foxhole on a regular basis, and they would play your prank calls 
um, the regular rotation on, on the regular there. rotation yeah. on there. And so that's I was like, who is this Roy Wood Jr.? And I think it, you mentioned at some point that you had a CD. And I went and purchased the CD. I put wow. money in your pocket, Roy. Money in your pocket. I went and purchased the CD. Laughed my ass off the the, the whole way. Um, but this is when you were obviously doing radio in Birmingham, in Birmingham. Yeah, correct? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, but let's go back before then because I know you went to FAM and that's when you started doing comedy. What was it that drove you to pursue this profession? Like, I always wanted to do stand-up, but then I just never had the courage because I was never in a school for more. It wasn't until high school that I was in a school system for more than two years. So I was always bouncing around town to another school to another school. Why so, were you uh, bouncing around so much? My mom was trying to put me in gifted classes. So, like, in those days, you know, you could lie about your address a lot easier without the government. Without going to prison? Yeah, exactly. If you black, that is. Exactly. Shout out <laughs> Felicity. So my mom was trying to find the best classrooms for me. And so once I got to high school and I started fitting in, I'm like, I ain't going to try this comedy shit now. I'm finally in the school. Ain't nobody cracking on me. I'm, I just need to be quiet. Got to college, and the cool thing about college is that you get to become a new person because nobody nobody knew you or whatever. So I was kind of cracking jokes here and there, never quite got over the hump. Then I was 19, I stole some blue jeans from Dillard's. Shout out to Tallahassee Mall, North Monroe Street. The best, the best blue jeans money could be. Well, I, I well didn't, you I didn't, didn't buy money. them. But yes. So, best place to steal blue jeans, apparently. So in the process of getting on probation for that. Oh, wait, you got caught? Oh, yeah. Hell yeah. I was sitting in jail. Yeah. It's jeans. It was 19. Ain't on the bed. I just wanted to look fresh for homecoming. I thought, see, Peter Warwick died on the cross so you could live. No, I did it first. I did it for Peter Warwick. That's why they called Peter Warwick. Because they they need to be more careful. wait, wasn't he as a dealer too? Yes. It was the same store. Same store, same department. Oh, my goodness. Same department. I was a pioneer, but you know. They don't want you to know about them black history facts. No, ahead of your time. So you stole some jeans. I stole some jeans. Did you just smooth walk out with them? No, there was the girl at the register was in on it. She oh, knew. she was trying to hook you up. Yeah, exactly. Okay, it was like you. an eighty dollar pair of jeans, and we got them for twenty. But that's petty theft retail. And so you know, they got her. She's like, he did it because you know people be snitching. Mm. It's, it's the dope game, man. Yeah. Did you snitch or no? No, no. Okay. What, you know what's messed up about getting arrested though is that the first thing they do when they arrest you is that they try to pin every unsolved crime in the city on you. That's the one thing no one talks about, about the criminal justice system. It's, oh, we caught you for this. Do you know anything about all this cocaine? I'm like, sir, I'm a 19-year-old. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm in college, sir. I'm in college. I don't know nothing about no cocaine. I just wanted to look nice for homecoming. That's all I was trying to do. And so I thought that I was going to prison. And you don't, the, the concept of probation didn't even register. I just thought I was going to prison. So, Fuck it. Before I go to prison, let me go and try and do these jokes real quick because I'm going to die in jail. So let me just try doing comedy. And comedy became this, like, escape. And I ended up getting probation and just been doing comedy ever since. And this, that's that was 1998. That's that's probably one of the most unique origin stories I've ever heard. It wasn't a dare and an open mind. I bet you won't get a dance. No, I was scared. I was scared that my life was over. So before my life ended, I intended to try everything I ever wanted to do. Comedy was on the list. Mm, so that first stand-up, do you remember what that was like? Oh, it was rough. It was rough. I took the bus up to Birmingham and did stand-up at an open mic at the comedy club Stardom. I don't remember all of my jokes, but I remember doing one joke about how I got a roommate that eats some of my food. I'd rather him just eat all the food. I had a seven up. My roommate drank six of them. I came home, had to drink a one up. 
Wow. Kiss my ass. That was that was a great joke. <laughs> In 1998. All right, that was no, great. that wasn't funny. That, that wouldn't have been funny in 1918. Okay, I told it with confidence, though. It's all about stage presence. You're right. It's all about how you sell it. It got a chuckle. Did it? It got, it got one of them all oh, bless his heart chuckles. So, uh, at what point did you feel like, hey, I'm I'm actually good at this? Like once you started kind of getting over those fears and. When did you recognize that you were actually good? I still don't feel like I'm good. I I know that when I so when I graduated, so I spent my last two years of college as a road comedian and still taking my journalism classes. And what I did, I stacked my courses. Wait, you you were in journalism? Yeah, oh, J school action a little what? bit of that. We lost another one. Yeah. Man. Okay. All right. You know, because you know what it was. It was it was three people that made me believe that I could do journalism. And, you know, my father was in radio. I have, you know, a bunch of brothers that were in TV. But I didn't want that path. But when I saw it was Stuart Scott, it was Fred Hickman, and this guy Van Earl Wright on uh, Headline News. And Van Earl Wright was like this white dude that would just talk crazy over the highlights. So Fred Hickman and Van Earl Wright were both anchors in Detroit, where I'm from. Wow. Yes, I know both of them, yeah. Dude, Van Earl Wright would have talked like this, and it's crazy, and the birds beat the Cardinals and the Yankees. So you have this white dude doing all these sing-songy stuff, and you got Stuart Scott using vernacular that I use in my everyday life. I'm like, oh, okay, well, that's right, journalism. That's what I'll do. So when I started doing stand-up, when I got back in school and I kept doing stand-up, I stacked all my courses Tuesdays through Thursdays. And so Friday through Monday, I was on the road, and... My mom didn't approve of it. We didn't talk much in the early days. My grades got better, ironically. That's the crazy thing, is that by having less time to study, I actually studied when it was time to study. And so when I got out of college, the deal I made with my mother was, hey, um, hey let me live with you. And if every year I make more money than I do the year before, then I get another year with you up to three years. And so when I graduated college, my projections were that I would make $17,000 on the road doing comedy. I don't know what I would lose in expenses or whatever, but I knew I would clear 17. I had two job offers, both $13,000, because I didn't do any internships while I was in school because I was on the road. So there was no real journalism offers coming in for me. So I thought, I might as well do this. And I just told my mom, here's the projections. This year I should make 17, this year, this year, by year three, I should be making $25,000. Three years out of college, I was making $30,000 just as a road comedian. That's pretty good. So when I moved out of my mother's house and I signed a lease to my first spot with no roommate and just living by myself, that was that was an important milestone Like to answer the question of when I felt like, oh, maybe I could do this. It was a little 600 square foot apart. It wasn't much, five and a quarter in Birmingham, but it was mine. I had my car. I was making my car payments. You couldn't tell me shit. I was like, hey, I'm I'm a working comedian. At that point, I was just starting to get paid at the radio station as well. Because when I got back to Birmingham after I graduated, I finessed my way into radio and worked there for free for a year and a half. But I took the prank phone calls that I was making and sold them to other radio stations in other markets so that essentially you kind of make Birmingham work for right, Y'all ain't paying me. But I'm getting paid in Omaha, I'm getting paid in Little Rock, I'm getting paid in Toledo. And then I could message comedy clubs in those markets and go, hey, you should book me. I'm on the radio in your market. And so that's how I was able to use the prank phone calls to book myself in other markets by having a radio presence. So you were like Master P selling tapes out the trunk. 
Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, that was a supplementary income. And, you know, you could sell tapes at the shows and stuff like that. But for me, I needed exposure. I needed reach. I needed to reach people. So in those days, and you know, remember, this is 2002. You're not putting stuff out online for real, for real. YouTube didn't come around till 04. So you would air a prank one time, and that was it. The concept of setting up a website and go download today's jokes. And, no. If you missed it, it was gone. That was it. You, you just didn't hear the prank for today. And so I started putting the prank phone calls on my website. And my website crashed inexplicably like a month after I did that. And I go, okay, well, I don't know what that's about. Called a web developer. He goes, yeah, you had a spike in traffic and you got to pay more for server fees. And I'm like, what are you talking about? He goes, oh, somebody's downloading all these pranks. And people were downloading my pranks and passing them all. And this is back when going viral was over email. That's how old I am. Like, there was a time in this world, young people, where a friend would just send you an attachment and say, download this and listen to it. And you would. You wouldn't ask no questions. Now you'd be crazy. Right. You wouldn't give a damn about a virus. Like, whatever. Yeah, you didn't care. You just it download just, it. And you would look through the email, and it would show you all of the people who got this file before you. And you're just scrolling and scrolling. And it's just months of CCs of just other people. And that's kind of what helped me. That's what helped me grow comedically before having an, a TV credit and having a TV presence. Well, as uh, I told you all who are listening a moment ago, that is how I happened upon Roy Wood Jr. And in fact, um, there are probably three pranks that I consider to be my favorite. One of them uh, is, I think my number one is still Titty Meat. Titty Meat is still, <laughs> Titty Meat's the all-time <laughs> classic, all right? So, I think you can Google that one online. I think it's under breast reduction. Oh, is it? Oh, so that's why I didn't come up when I put in titty meat. Yeah. Oh, I get it now. Well, I can't have a... <laughs> I was selling these at Sam Goody. You can't just have the word titty on the packaging for the young people. Well, the, 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 the setup of the prank was Roy was a bill collector, and he called this woman <laughs> and, who had gotten a, a breast reduction. Mm-hmm. And he said that, you know, we're going to have to come in and repossess some of the titty meat. Yeah, we got to put the titty meat back in because you paid your bill. Because you paid your bill. And this woman <laughs> lost it. And it was, I, I swear, I I thought I legitimately was going to pee on myself. It was so funny. And um, so that was probably number one. However, I did find number two, which I have right now. Um, and so for those who have not heard a Roy Wood Junior prank, you are in for a treat. Here's my number two all-time favorite prank of yours, my girl Barbara. Oh. Hello. Barbara. Uh-huh. Good morning. Good morning. This is Dr. Sidman Azibo. I call you on the behalf of the Federal Social Security Administration Division. I call you about your Social Security check. Uh-huh. Yes, ma'am. I call to let you know that we're going to be reducing your check because the government is having cutbacks right now in the midst of everything that go on with the, the hurricane and the gas price. And we try to help the gas and the surplus of the nation. So we will cut your check back down to $250 for the next 12 months. And oh, then, no, y'all won't? Yes, ma'am. Yes, ma'am. No, ma- no, sir. Ma'am, do not. You better, you better tell them folks or have them hurricane folks. 
They better get them a job. Like I work for mine. They better get up and work for theirs. No, that's How could you say something so insensitive that is not nice to say about the hurricane people because they are trying to get back on their feet? This is not just about the hurricane, about hurricane rebuild. This is about the gas price and healthy gas oh, price. That, nobody has to have a car. Let them walk like I do. Shut up and be a good American, please. And Man, I'm not standing by being no good American, no bad American, because I'm not even an American. I'm just a person living in America. There's no such thing as a good or a bad American. And I bet I'd be a bad American if I come and slap you for hollering at me like that. No, if you come and slap me, you'll be a dead American because I'm going to fuck you up. No, ma'am, you will not touch me because I'm a train. If you touch me, I'm a train, my boy. So, context. That prank call was done a month after Hurricane Katrina. And there was, and so Birmingham was a city where a lot of refugees had been moved to. And so in a lot of the cities where Katrina survivors were moved to, there was tension. There was real tension between the use of resources and, oh, these people coming in, they getting our jobs. And, uh, there was a real, it was, it was kind of fucked up, but that's what the mood was. So I tried to use what was going on in the real world and just call a woman and just go, yeah, we need you to take that to go help them. Mm-mm. And she just snapped. And all of these pranks, pretty much all the pranks I've done, I was put up to it by someone in the family. Because you had, I mean, you you had to know some inside info. Like, especially yeah. when you played a bill collector. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you had to know what they owed on something. Yeah. It, and it's, it's weird listening to the pranks now because I, I haven't done a formal prank call album. 2008 was the last album that I put out. And it's weird because I don't even know if I could get people on the phone today just because of the nature of cell phones. and. Well, most people don't answer calls they don't recognize. Exactly. Yeah. Even if it's an area call. I especially don't. And this is horrible to say. I know Birmingham people don't hear this. I don't answer 205 numbers. Like, I don't answer weird numbers that match the area code on my phone. I'm just not. I don't know who this is. but It's probably a robocall or somebody who shouldn't have my number calling about some bullshit and I'm not uh, I just don't want to entertain it so I don't even know if I could do something like that today yeah so how did you even come up with the concept to start doing prank calls I didn't want to do prank phone calls Ricky Smiley was so I replaced Ricky Smiley on the morning show in Birmingham and Ricky was and still is king of Birmingham you know period point blank and I know he has a big syndicated show and everything now and he's taking over for Tom Joyner um, pretty soon but at that time Ricky was the funniest person in the city, and he was known for prank phone calls. So when he left, anybody that replaced him, you have to do prank phone calls. And I wanted to, and that's not even what I wanted to do. I wanted to do stuff like the chicken sandwich. I wanted to do sketches. I wanted to do like radio soap operas, like how Tom Joyner had It's Your World. I wanted to do stuff like that. I wanted to do parody songs. I wanted to do fake commercials. And they were cool with all of that, so long as you do prank phone calls. And I didn't want to do them, but this is what the people love, so let me do them. And then I figured out a way to get good at them. And then once I realized, oh, shit, this will make me some money on the side because y'all ain't going to pay me shit. All right, I'll let me go and do these prank phone calls for real, for real. And so that's kind of how it started. So do you have a favorite prank? Because I should also add this for context, too, to the Barbara story. That was the second time you got her. Yeah, we called her before and told her we was taking some of her airline miles because she farts on the plane. Which is a true story as well. She really does <laughs> fart a lot. On, yeah. Yeah. She she farts a lot on the plane. And it wasn't, it, the prank didn't pop as good as we wanted it to. And so we waited six months and we called and got our ass again. Oh, my Some God. people just hotheads, man. <laughs> There's, um, yeah, what's your favorite that you've done? 
I'll tell you the one that I got that got me fired. Oh, the first time I got fired. Okay, from radio. that's a good one. Um, I called a cruise ship company. Y'all sponsored by any cruise ship? Nah, company? go ahead, I, flame them. I called Carnival Cruise Lines, and I told him my granddaddy left his wallet on the slave ship when he came from Africa, and I need them to check lost and found. And that's not even what got me in trouble. What got me in trouble is that the lady on the phone tried to help me find the ship. <laughs> Wait, what? She's checking the computer. You can hear her checking the computer. It's on YouTube. Let your listeners go find that one on their own. Like, the, the lady is, sir, I'm checking our fleet. We don't have a slave ship in our fleet. And I got fired because it was the middle of the summer promotion that Carnival was sponsoring. <laughs> Did you know that when you? Yeah, I thought it would be good advertising. Like I, leg- I legitimately thought that I was doing a good thing, right? By just cracking this joke, and I know we're in a different time and wokey woke and disrespect to slavery. But at that point in two thousand four, you go and slide that slave ship joke up in there, and uh, you yeah, can still I slide that slave joke in there, there today. I think I, think. I can tactfully still do that yeah. prank call today. But it's just that I did it on a sponsor, and they had to roll me. Yeah, man. They rehired me eight months later. Can't fuck up the money. Yeah, but if you're good at making the money, they bring you back. Yeah. So you said that was the first time you got fired. Yeah. Okay. Second time, that was 2012. I got fi- I found out I got fired on Twitter. I didn't even know. I didn't even know. They just put out a press release that the morning show's dead. I like I was getting up. You know, you just getting up, getting ready to start your day and go, oh, well, I guess I ain't got to go to work. I was like, wait, were you on your way into work? Well, I was doing, at the time, I was in L.A. doing the show remotely because I booked a sitcom, and that was part of the problem, was that they didn't want me being on the West Coast while the rest of the show was still in Alabama. And they go, well, we just, we just really, I go, well, y'all could have just said something. It's L.A. time. I'm getting up at 2 in the morning and prep the whole show, then go to check Twitter, and I see all these people going, we always love Roy. Damn, man, I'm so sad he gone. I'm like, did I die? Because whenever you get fired, people say the same stuff when you get fired. The same as when you die. Man, he was funny, man. We I really him. missed him. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, no, Lord. I didn't, is this what heaven is like? A Ramada Inn? Well, um, <laughs> I guess you could say you'll never forget that experience. No, um, but even even as you were you know, on the radio and building your career, uh, you toured a lot in the South, right? I mean, that was yeah, kind of your, like your domain. That was when I started. Like my first 10 years of standup was just road work in the South. You mm. know, if I could do it again, I would have got to the coast faster. But, you know, it was a good learning experience. The only way I can, can, the only thing I can compare it to is that if you're a comedian or an entertainer and you start in a big city, you know, you start with the nucleus of people that were also an open mic with you and y'all matriculate together. Like I get... This part of me that sometimes is envious when I see older comedians that are friends with other like beasts and they came up together. Like when you see Jerry Seinfeld and George Wallace just kicking it in comedians and cars and their relationship goes back to the 70s. Or you see D.L. Hughley and Steve Harvey and all of them and you know they go back years and years because they were in a, they were in the mix together. When you're just a road comic, you're working with a different motherfucker every week. So just there's just no there's no cohesiveness. So then you don't. I mean, you. But you do see some of the same people on the road over and over. A or, little bit until you start growing. Once I start headlining, you start headlining. We don't ever see each other again unless it's at a festival. So you just lose touch and you don't cross paths because you don't live in the same cities as often. So it's almost like regular school versus being a road comic is like being homeschooled. I learned all the same stuff you learned, but I don't have as many friends. And now we're both adults doing this job, and we kind of have a weird 
different relationship with people and stuff like that. But, you know, through the opportunities that I got over those years to do to do television, mainstream and black stuff, you meet people and, you know, you form bonds and a lot of those relationships I still have today. But they're not as tight because it's like having a friend from kindergarten versus having a friend from college. It's two different. It's different roots. The roots just go deeper with the person you've known since kindergarten. Right. So what was what is it like um, touring and and or touring during that time in the South and doing comedy? It's um, it's weird because there's some rooms where. To work every week as a Southern, as, as a comedian in the South and the Midwest, I just think that you have to be able to appeal to multiple demographics. You're not going to fill out 48 weeks out of the year. You're not going to fill out 48 weeks out of the year just telling jokes to black people. You're just not. There ain't 48 cities with wages or 48 clubs. It just doesn't exist. So you have to slot in colleges, casinos with the old people mainstream rooms, things like that. So I just think it helped to creatively, I feel like it helped me build a diversity of my material because instead of trying to rework a joke every week for a different type of demographic, I just go, here's the joke. Let's figure out how this joke works for everybody perform the same way in every room. And that way I don't have to change anything. The only thing I have to change from a demographic standpoint is if it's old people talk slower and if it's black people talk faster, <laughs> like I'm like really so, okay. From a cadence standpoint, you can get away with talking faster to black people, and it's more relatable because black people can keep up. Like on some. What about old black people? Yeah, they're fine. Okay. Yeah, old black people know how to talk. Like you know, I can talk like this, and I can talk real fast right here, man. And I seen another boy, and the boy came around there, and I said, "Boom!" And he had a hamburger in his hand. You heard me perfectly fine, but. If a white person isn't used to that cadence and that tempo and that speed, they can't even keep up. So you're missing jokes. So you just have to slow it down a little bit. But the joke itself is still the same. And so those are the little tricks that I started learning. So that by the time I got, I moved to L.A. first. I was in L.A. for like seven, eight years. And then when I got to New York, I was like, oh, well, I know how to work all of these different types of crowds and audiences. And it's just the difference now is in the bigger cities, all of those people are mixed into the same show. Entertainment is a lot more segregated that I think people are willing to admit. How so? In the, in the South, in LA, there's, there's Black Knight, you know? The concept of this is the Black Knight for the entertainment, or this is the Black venue for the thing. Whereas in a lot of bigger cities, I think that there are more places where you're more liable to see a Black person, an LGBTQ person, an older person, you know, millennial, an old head, gray hair, like all in the same venue enjoying the same thing because there's such a variety of performers on the docket. Whereas in the South, there's not, there's not the bevy of talent. So they can only have the two or three comedians that they flew in. Whereas in San Francisco, you go to a comedy club, it's going to be eight motherfuckers on the show and it's going to be an array. So, you know, it'll be something for you, no matter what, at least three of these comments are going to be somebody you vibe with. Right. Um, well, you have been in the game, um, a long time and so you've certainly seen how comedy has evolved uh, we have to take a quick break but when we come back I definitely want to talk to you about what seems to be just a constant discussion in comedy the about culture. Yeah, the culture the cancel cancel. Co cancel culture what jokes can you tell in 2019 what jokes can't you tell so we're going to dive into that uh, as soon as we come back
night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. So as I mentioned before we took the break, um, you know, comedy in 2019 has become so polarizing, which is kind of crazy because it used to be one of those things that kind of united us. We can all laugh about certain relatable items, um, relatable situations, themes, all those kind of things. But these days, you know, with uh, this mythical cancel culture and all these other things going on, it feels like comedians these days are being asked to be held accountable for the things that they say, even as as just jokes. So, Roy, um, given that you're clearly the expert in this situation, do you feel like this environment is too harsh, just right, on comedians? Like, what is your perspective of this cancel culture versus comedians situation that we see happening? I think that, well, let me take you back 03. Um, I think that was the year of the Janet Jackson nipple incident. Mm -hmm. So Janet Jackson's nipple pops out. Radio stations across the country start having these FCC lawyers come in to teach, to reteach the concept of what's decent and indecent. And the rules of radio change, the things you could say change. And one of the things that stuck with me, and this is the federal definition of indecency, was... Something can be deemed indecent if based on the community standards as set by the people in that area, which means that you could do something that's edgy if the people that are also listening and consuming it feel like that's well within the well within the bounds. And what that taught me at the time was that the people, the people that are being entertained, the people who are receiving the information, not the people disseminating it. The people receiving the information are the ones who decide what is decent and indecent. The community at large makes that decision, not the performer, the community. Community standards change. Communities evolve. Communities start adding people. There's a concept of inclusion. So if more people are being included within said community, then there's going to be different, there's going to be different levels of tolerance. And I think that's where we are now. If you look now, 15, 16 years post-nipple, the community standards have changed. People who are consuming comedy, some of them don't want to hear that shit. That don't mean you can't say it. That don't mean you can't perform it. But if somebody decides they don't want to hear that shit, and then they tell a venue they don't want to hear that shit, and enough people gang up on that venue and go, hey, we don't want to hear that shit, at the end of the day, it's a business. It's a business. And I think that a lot of comedians are assuming the right to venue and not the freedom, and not the right to, you have freedom of speech, you don't have freedom of venue. Or freedom from consequences either. Correct. Yeah. So, if let's just take Saturday Night Live, let's just jump on that. Yeah, if, that was where I was going with this. Okay, so let's say, let's say Saturday Night Live goes, we gonna stand by, we gonna stand by Shane, we don't care about the, the Asian jokes, we believe in a performer. But then if enough people gang up on SNL and go, we will not watch your show, we will make it hell for your advertisers, that's bad for business. And at the end of the day, every corporation, every network is here to make money. They don't give a fuck about the concept 
of freedom of speech and empowerment and the message that it sends. How dare you expect righteousness from a corporation? Use a clown, motherfucker, if you think that Saturday Night Live is going to stand by somebody that's bad for business. Especially somebody who most people have not been exposed to yet. For the, for exactly. The, right. So yes, right. Shane got the right to say whatever the fuck he wants to say. But if Saturday Night Live decides that you're bad for business, you got to go. Now, is that right that all of these people are speaking out? You can be mad at that. You can be mad at that. But to say that these people are wrong for being angry at Chappelle, I don't think it's fair. Right. Go ahead and be angry. The, the thing with Chappelle that's different from someone like Shane is that Chappelle ain't got nothing you can take from him. Chappelle's not on a network. Chappelle's not doing anything that you could like legitimately go and criticize and attack the advertisers on. He's self-made. So I don't think that there's I don't think that there's a connection between the two. I just think that there's a way for as a comedian, you just have to decide. The community, the standards of the community at large have changed. Yeah. So do you want to still be edgy or whatever you want to call it? Go ahead and be there. It might be edgy and broke. But there's something, that, yeah, there's something <laughs> that comes with that. There's comedians that I know right now that they don't post where they're performing until the day of the show to keep people from attacking the venue and canceling the show. They just announce the city, they sell the tickets, and then an hour before the show, you get an email telling you where the venue is. And they do that to navigate around people that don't want their type of ideology in their town or their city and stuff like that. And so there's ways around it. It's just that to, to expect everyone to not be offended, because here's the thing, I can, I've, I've, I've not tiptoed a lot. I've kind of tiptoed around the Shane Gillis shit because I'm not Asian. Right. So to and speak and on for people not, real quick for people who don't know, Shane Gillis was supposed to be a cast member for Saturday Night Live. No, he was. Get that brother his credit. No, he, he was. was. You're he right. He was hired. He was hired. And then, much like Craig and Friday, he got fired for stealing boxes. <laughs> okay. He got fired because uh, they dug through the crates and he made some racist jokes about Asians and all hell broke loose and. He's suddenly out of a job. He got fired on his day off. He hadn't even started yet. Now, the context also is that they also hired their first ever Asian cast member. At the same, at the same time. time. Right. So, so it was a lot of it was a lot going on. But, so it's tension. Yeah, it's it tension. is. Um, but yeah, you said, you know, with you not being a member of that community, then you don't feel necessarily Were you saying like you don't feel necessarily. It's a lot of chiming in on stuff that it's like that ain't. That ain't none of my business. That ain't my bag. <laughs> yeah. That ain't my bag. You know, like if it, now Shane Gillis has said nigga, nigga, nigga. All right, let's have a conversation. Okay. Let's see, let's let's analyze the vocal inflection. Was there an, was there an attempt at a joke? Did he stick the joke? Like, there's there's other layers that could be added to that. But you know, if people have decided that they don't want that, at the end of the day, it's capitalism above all, and that's what I think a lot of comedians that are upset at this culture haven't quite grasped is that the fight for righteousness will never be superlative to the fight for money. Well. You brought up Chappelle, and I watched Dicks and Stones. Some parts I laughed at, some parts I didn't. I am of the belief that you can get away with literally saying anything if it's funny. Correct. And I compared that, and some of this is it's not a it's not a perfect analogy. But Tiffany Haddish also has a Netflix special. It's not about her. She's she has six female comedians. She they ready. They ready, yeah. right? That she is given this platform, and they're all performing. One of the people that is in that group is a transgender comedian, Flame Monroe. Mm -hmm. 
Mm-hmm. Hilarious. Yeah. Right. Hilarious. And and definitely not for the easily offended, for no. sure. Now, people were on Chappelle's ass about the transgender jokes that he told. Correct. I think a lot of it was, frankly, the special. I was a little disappointed because it, it, he sounded as if he was old man yelling at Cloud. That it 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 sounded a little mean. For sure, some of it was mean. Like he, I mean, just full disclosure, he went after one of my girls, Dream Hampton, who produced the R. Kelly docu series, correct? Um, Surviving R. Kelly on Lifetime, threw her name in there for no reason at all. It just seemed kind of weird to me. And then he's caping for Louis C.K. It just it just went in a lot of unnecessary directions where I'm like, dude, this shit ain't even funny. It's like do a Twitter rant because it, it feels like that's what you wanted to do as opposed to entertain people. I think that the issue, the difference between the lack of outrage on Flame versus the outrage towards Dave is just ownership and agency of being a member of the communities which you're criticizing. Or if it comes across less critical, if or if it comes across less analytical and more critical. And I think that's probably the biggest difference between, because I think that for the jokes that Dave did in Equanimity, which I've considered, in a way, I kind of consider Sticks and Stones a sequel to Equanimity because there, there were a lot of topics in Sticks and Stones that were reactionary to the outrage from jokes in Equanimity. Right. And I didn't think that outrage was actually all that warranted. <laughs> because it was it was analytical. Yeah. And I think that equanimity was more analytical than where sticks and stones in certain parts, some of the jokes came from a place of criticism. And so I think that a lot of people are, well, I don't want to be pointed at. I don't like, no one wants to be pointed at at all. But that's also what comedy is supposed to do. Comedy is supposed to be able to take whatever it is that makes you feel uncomfortable and ha show the mirror. And people can go, fuck that, I don't like it. And that's not gonna hurt Chappelle, but in outrage culture. I think there's a difference between outrage culture and, and cancel culture as well. I think outrage culture, culture then begets the canceling, whereas the first time, which because no one's saying delete your Netflix or I ain't going to watch Netflix no more because Chappelle attacked trans people. Like, no one is saying that. Right. Whereas with SNL, people were legit going, fuck SNL. I'll never watch it again. It's trash. It's terrible. I'll attack the advertisers. And so I think that's where... If there's no, if there's no, if there's nothing you can take away from the person, it's just outrage and it's just yelling and everybody's going to get mad. Yeah. I mean, I didn't even think it, I didn't think he needed to even respond to it. I guess I was a little surprised that he he sort of did. I mean, there were some jokes in, in Sticks and Stones that I thought were like brilliant. I thought the Anthony Bourdain joke was brilliant. I mean, yeah. I thought that was brilliant, um, you know, and and even the the alphabet and the car, uh, that had a lot of potential. I thought he undercut it with some things, but that, <laughs> that had think, a lot of potential. Do you think, though, that because Dave stepped out and gave jokes that were to some degree reactionary to things in the zeitgeist instead of his own analysis? That's what it was. Totally. But do you think that that has come about? Because we do live in a time where people are more vocal and more critical of status. Because no stand-up in the last five I'd say the last five years has had to deal with legitimate analysis, like where journalists are breaking down your set joke by joke and everyone has a Twitter. So everyone has an opinion. Everyone is essentially a reporter now. So I think that type of stuff, that pressure of I didn't like that. I didn't like that. I didn't like that. To some degree for Dave, that becomes his zeitgeist. And if he has to talk about the things that are happening around him, being criticized is one of the things that happened to him. So Here's a way to bring that up. Yeah, um, I guess you're you're right about that. And maybe because I've been watching Chappelle for so long, I'm used to analytical Dave. 
And I like Analytical Dave, and I like when he gives his perspective on on certain things. And maybe there was a special, the special just seems so reactionary, which is not really yeah, kind of him. But I, I, I yeah. mean, I get it. Well, because Analytical Dave has never been asked to be held accountable for the things he said. Yeah. And I think that's what all comedians are having to deal with now. So um, much like, uh, you know, with Shane Gillis, I mean, they, again, they dug back in the crates. Where do you stand on comedians being being held accountable or asked to being held accountable about, about jokes that they told years ago? I think being accountable is fine, but I think that to some degree it's pointless because I also don't feel like we live in a society where forgiveness is a real thing. I think that right now we live in a society where rage and anger and the annihilation of people is a real thing. And so that there's no separation. Everything is a felony punishable by death in the eyes of a lot of people who are offended. So there's no separation between, oh, you said you called an Asian the C word in 2018. So that's too close to recent, therefore. But, oh, Kevin Hart said a homophobic joke, but it was 10 years ago. But... It was a joke that he'd apologized for four years ago. So what is the sliding ratio? There's no formula. It's just you found out that I've said something that's horrible and you're mad and you want justice now. But what's to happen five, ten years from now when people find out again about the thing and then they, it's all over again? So it's something that's circular. And I don't think that I don't think it's fair to put every offense in the same bucket. But until we have some level of accountability for the more heinous things, the more minor things get thrown in. And I think that's just, I mean, you just caught up in the meat grinder. It, I mean, that's probably what it's really about is that um, it, it's kind of like a Al Capone, right? They never got him for murdering anybody. They got him for tax evasion. Right? Yeah, it's just <laughs> that what, 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 can't be, what can't be ignored by comedians is that there are a lot of people that are suffering. There are a lot of people that, this shit is not a joke to them. And it's not going to ever be a joke to them. So if they never heard about the original XYZ and then they hear about it now, their anger is now. They don't get to place their anger in the past with your previous apology. If you don't want to apologize again, that's fine. If you don't want to apologize at all, you don't have to. I don't think every comedian should be out here apologizing for every joke that they tried to tell. But you also have to know what comes with that. And to me, it's the outrage at the outrage that I that I get that confu that confuses me more. I completely understand why people are mad. I completely understand why people wouldn't want you on their television every week for something that affects them emotionally on a deeper level. But to be mad at people being mad, I just don't think that that makes sense. I just think that's just it's wasted energy. Was it easier or better to tell jokes under the Obama administration? <laughs> and I sort of, I kind of mean that as a real question because part of this anger that we see is this is not, you know, we give, we blame Donald Trump for a lot, which he deserves a lot of blame for. Um, but I, I don't certainly don't want to give him credit for too much. This anger has always been bubbling in America. Don't get me wrong. But especially now given the tone of this administration, the marginalization that's happening to different communities, everything was not necessarily perfect under Obama. That's not, that's not the case. But the tone of the country was a little bit different. So yeah, does, it, does it have something to do with, like you said, that misdirected anger? 
everyone wants to be heard because they're being mistreated in the real world. So anything that exacerbates that is in the in the crosshairs immediately. Like that's, I mean, white people mad too. You mentioned Trump at a show. They get up and start yelling the same way someone would if you did a trans joke. Like they, yeah, I'm talking about Trump. That's my, that's our president. You stand for our president. Like I done Kaepernick taking knee jokes and had white people walk out of the show and like that's not, but that's expected. Like that's just what it's gonna be, man. And I don't know. I'll say this: it was. I have more fun performing now under Trump than I did Obama. Why is that? Because it's more difficult. And if it's more difficult and you stick the landing, it's more rewarding. It's a more dangerous attempt at comedy. Comedy is more deadly now. Obama, there was some degree of a safety net because you knew everybody was still kind of chill and a lot more of a tolerant mood to certain levels of injustice. But now when you have real injustice happening in the real world and it's on TV every day and you have people in cages, you have people getting split at the border, like you have all of this real, real shit happening. And then you hear a joke about it. That shit hit differently. But if you have a way of doing a joke on those things and navigating all of those little tight, what, what is it, needle? The thread, thread Threading the needle. needle. Mm-hmm. And you're able to thread that needle of indecency and land in a safe place, that's one of the most brilliant things that I think any performer could ever pull off, especially a comedian. I think that's why we've always loved Chappelle is because he's been able to thread the needle. And I think that there's a degree of disappointment that a lot of people have at Chappelle because they feel like he didn't properly thread the needle on the last special. And I think that comes from having an expectation of more and greatness and all those things. So I think all of that stuff is still rooted in the respect for Chappelle's skill set. And it's not just straight up just, fuck him, he said the thing. I don't like. Yeah, well, I think about, uh, I've had this discussion with other comedians who have um, been on the podcast about whether or not Raw could ever be made today. No. Couldn't happen, right? Raw, <laughs> no. Raw is up out of there. Half the black movies in the 90s couldn't be made today. I went back and watched um, Low Down, Dirty Shame. You couldn't make that today? You'd no, to, you couldn't make that today. You could I'm, make it, but you would have to take out the gay character. You'd have to take character. out, yep, you would. Yeah. You'd, have to, you'd have to take out the gay character, you would have to completely change Keenan Ivory Wayne's relationship, relationship with, with the gay character. Because yep. that whole, that whole their, their entire run is homophobia. Yep. Keenan wakes up in the bed with them. And the gay character rolls I over and smiles. I them in the crying game. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And, mm-hmm. and Keenan screams and runs mm-hmm. out the room and thinks that they had sex. Like, there's so many homophobia-based jokes from black cinema. Oh, yeah. In the 90s that it just wouldn't work. Mm-hmm. It worked. I don't even know if you could do In Living Color Men on film. Or you would have to do it with actual gay characters. And that goes back to the concept of ownership and agency to make the joke if you are part of the community with which the joke is deriving from. I think that... It's probably the only way you could get away with that. And even still, there may be some dissension within that community of you kind of perpetuating the stereotype about us. We'd appreciate if you didn't do that. It's kind of like how, and again, this isn't my place completely to speak on because it ain't my battle. But I know that there are some Asians that don't fuck with Ken Jeong because they feel like what he does is too much of a caricature. It's playing to the stereotypes. Correct. Mm -hmm. Now, I know Ken personally, so I can... I feel more comfortable in, in bringing that up. But there's always within that culture, but even still, Ken Jong being himself 
is way better than casting a white actor to, and to, putting them in a wig. Yeah, and, and, and having them play an Asian. Some of that Rob Schneider, SNL type stuff. Like th- Now, that would just be blatant. But nobody's also, but by the same token, no one's trying to cancel Ken Jong because he's still part of that community and owns that. And so there, and there's a lot of people that love Ken. So it's like, it's this thing where if you're of the culture, it's probably easier to get away with that type of stuff now. And I think that's good for inclusion because now you have a situation where you have to cast a specific type of person if you want to do that joke. If you want to do this thing, you need this type of actor because that's going to make it also feel more authentic once you put it on camera. Are there jokes, areas that you will not tell in 2019? I don't know about in 2019, but just in general, I've never done... I've never done sex, obesity, disability... Those are my three. Those are the three that I for sure don't really. And I and I count disease to a degree as disability. You know, just anything that's not your fault. I never did sex humor. A lot of it is, but a lot of it's rooted in the early days when I was trying to get on Comic View. And so when I when I I, I got I got I got turned down for Comic View two years in a row, at a time where I felt like. I got six minutes. This is good as this bullshit. Like, you I, was, know. I, I was thinking in my in my mind as you were saying that. How? <laughs> okay. But but as a young comedian, you sit and you watch and you hate. And I was I, so I would watch Comic View every year, and I would just hate. And I was like, man, funny. Man, I got a joke. He opened for me that one time. So you sit there and watch. So I spent an entire year. The second time I got turned down for Comic View, I spent an entire year cataloging the topics of each episode so that I could see what was everything that every black comedian that's on television is talking about and then make it a point to not talk about any of those things. So if at minimum, you have to respect originality. So now you have to fuck with me just because you're not, you're not judging my material topic for topic. Because if I do a section, so the things that were most prominent in my research, it was sex jokes, it was poverty jokes, it was you so ugly, People so fat and a lot of handicap jokes, a lot of handicap jokes. So inherently, I just never touched those topics because I knew that it was going to be 90 other people telling jokes on these topics. And if I submit a tape to get on Comet View, you're going to compare my handicap joke. To his. So just, you know, I just want to do that. There's enough people doing it that for me, it's lazy. I don't I would rather just talk about something different. And so that just formed habitually that just stayed. And 20 years later, to this day, I just don't, it's just not my thing. So where and, where do you get the, where does most of your material come from? You just find stuff that people are already mad about and then find another way into the topic. So it's easier, because that's more relatable, you know. I enjoy, I enjoy doing comedy that mediates arguments. You know, like on my first special, uh, I had a bit where we were talking about how, you know, they want people to stand, you know, people want, they, they want people, they want black people to stand for the anthem, right? And the truth of the matter is that black people have never been patriotic. If you just look at the history of black music, we've never written an original patriotic song. Every song that, that's America, I love America, and ooh, America, 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 I love America, it was written and performed by white people. Black people will do a cover. We ain't going to write the song because black people don't sing about America. Black people sing about specific cities where you can have a good time. 
And I go and I start talking about Welcome to Atlanta. I talk about Will Smith, Miami, and just start going through the song catalog of cities that black people have sung about. And people always bring up Living in America by James Brown and go, oh, well, that's black and it's about America. And I go, yes. But at the end of the song, he just starts naming cities. Miami, and, uh, New York, yeah, and, and L.A. Yeah. It's just all safe spaces for black people. Like, he says live in America, but then at the end of the song, he gives black people the 10 cities where they can go live. New Orleans, Detroit City, Dallas, Pittsburgh, PA. Like, so... For me, that's a fun joke because it's about, it's essentially about patriotism and the concept of black patriotism and how it's never been a thing inherently in our race. So to get mad and go, well, I don't know why they stand for the anthem. We ain't never really been super proud. <laughs> well, the, the the irony, though, about what you say is that um, even though given our treatment um, for years and years and years and disenfranchisement and oppression and and slavery and all that other good stuff um that when it came down came time to muscle up for the country we were always willing to do that yes. which to me is the most patriotic thing that you can do <laughs> is that you know we're like okay you know shit is fucked up here but it's our fucked up let's go you know what i'm saying yeah. and so um that's what i've always thought was really interesting when white people often question the patriotism of black people. And it's like, nah, can you think of anybody else that would get shit on for as long as we would and be like, you know what? Civil War, let's sign up. Let's Let's go. (laughs) Got a couple inventions I made. So here's a peanut. Go ahead and enjoy (laughs) that peanut. You know what I'm saying? So it's it's always, uh, patriotism, generally speaking, has been defined as white anyway. Um, That's just their definition that they have come up with. And so uh, if we fall short of how they have defined it through whiteness, then you know, it becomes a, a debate and an issue and people get it's angry. Fun, it's fun to to be able to take issues that people think are just one thing or not, like recycling and how the, the concept of, oh, like all these stores want you to bring your own bag, right? Or buy a reuse, reusable bags. That's, that's the thing. And recycling and save the earth and the bag. And then you go somewhere and you buy something small and they don't want to give you a bag. And you don't that need shit a bag. is so annoying. I, I live in L.A. now. It's so annoying. And so I had to explain to this dude at Best Buy. And this really happened. I figured out a way to put it on stage because I'm trying to explain to him we live in two different Americas. I can't walk out of the store without a bag. I'm black. Like, say what, say what you want about recycling, but it's not safe. It's not safe for black people to just not have a bag. You, I need a bag. And I'm not bringing my own bag. I want your bag with the logo. And I want you to staple the receipt to the outside of the bag, like Chinese carry out. And I'm going to walk out this store, holding my bag in the air like fucking Lion King, Hakuna, Pride Rock. Like that concept of how I always leave with the receipt, even if it's for a stick of gum. I don't care if I bought a single Laffy Taffy. I need that paperwork, bro. Then my freedom papers to get up out this store. But don't they also understand, too, that... Black people, when we get bags from the grocery store, the multitude of uses that we have for oh, that's that bag. a whole separate conversation. See what I'm saying? Yeah. They don't understand. Like, see, we are not throwing these bags in the ocean. We're not littering with them. Like, yeah. that bag is going to be a takeout bag. Somebody going to take some uh, some leftovers in it. Flour it's, chicken. It's going to flour some chicken. <laughs> Thank you. 
You know, I bathroom mean, trash line. See what I'm saying? Like, what? And we don't change the bag in the bathroom. We just dump that bitch out and then just, yeah. there you go. Keep right? Going. Multiple uses for the bags. Yeah. And it's so annoying living in LA with that because I had to get used to one. I was just like, so you mean to tell me I got to buy a bag? Keep bringing it in here. There's been so many times in the store where I've left my bag in the truck, in the trunk of my car. And of course, my trifling ass, I don't feel like running to the, to the trunk. <laughs> to get the bag and so now all of a sudden I'm paying extra bag fees when I got very perfectly usable recycled uh, or some of those recycled bags in the back of my trunk so it's, a, it's just an annoying experience and yeah when I'm at CVS I don't want to have 30 things in my hand you know they just the bag thing just drives me crazy especially being in LA but yes that is very true you also given your experience at Dillard's you definitely need a receipt <laughs> you definitely need a receipt for every time, especially now that they've all heard that and story. And that's the thing. And that's why, like, I really enjoy what Trevor Noah has allowed me to do with The Daily Show. And to be able to do something that literally perfectly complements my comedic ideology now. Because The Daily Show is definitely about figuring out that alt angle on the issue or being able to speak to a side of something that a lot of people may not have considered, you know, like to be able, especially with black stuff, too, with black America, to be able to go out and take a camera and cover some blackity black shit, man. Like it's, and to find the jokes in it, like it's, that's a beautiful thing. And to be able to still do that on stage, but to be able to do that with cameras is, is dope, man. We did, um, we did a story uh, in Chicago and you know, the narrative, you know, the narrative they push about Chicago and they also try to act like black people aren't out there trying to take care of their own and black people aren't out there helping themselves. And you know, the whole, what about black on black crime narrative that they try to push. And I was able to pitch and get greenlit to go out and cover a story with a group of gang interrupters. It was a group called ceasefire um, that go out and literally block to block, talk to gang members and deescalate tensions. Like if somebody shot ceasefires out there talking to the people before the police even get to them and deescalating situations and to be able to go out and do something like that and have jokes in there and still address the issue and tell people shut the fuck up black people do care about black people man that's a, that's a good feeling so that's a good ass feeling why don't you uh talk about how you became a a regular on the the daily show cuz i'm told that, that ESPN has something to do with this oh, my yes, former company yes, yeah yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this i get fired from radio the sitcom gets canceled and for a year, I'm I'm doing road work. I'm doing auditions. I, you know, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do to try and figure it out. And I start doing Sports Nation. And I do Sports Nation often enough that uh, one of the brothers that was handling the booking of that <laughs> called a brother over in Bristol. He goes, hey, man, did a good job on Sports Nation. I think Jamel Hill and Michael Smith... Might want you to swing by old uh, his and hers. I go, really? So that was the relationship with people like you and Michelle Beadle and everyone over there at ESPN. It gave me an opportunity to find jokes and topics where nobody else was cracking jokes on a regular. And so, you know. And you're a big sports fan. Love sports. Love sports to death. So it's an opportunity to crack jokes about Sports And so to be able to find the weird joke on the thing, it essentially 
like, you know, Neil Brennan saw some of it and recommended me to a producer and that and the producers saw some of the clips and they're like, oh, okay, well, if you can joke about sports, you can joke about politics. Because those are the two things that are the most difficult, in my opinion, to joke about because everybody takes them so seriously. Sports is religion to some people, the same as politics. You could get stabbed over either one. I mean, that, that, that's that's very people, accurate. Uh, that's correction. very accurate. People have, have been. Oh, totally. Yeah, that's very stabbed. accurate. So that was essentially, you know, to to a large part, my time on ESPN for the year was an audition, an unknowing audition for The Daily Show. Mm. Now, so, what's it like working with Trevor? Uh, it's It's frustrating because he's so calm. Trevor has a way of no matter how outrageous and ridiculous a story is, is he just knows how to remain emotionally centered, which helps you find the jokes where I'm the one that's mad and come in like, you know, I don't know what they do in South Africa on some yoga Zen shit, but Trevor has mastered it because it helps to construct the show because no matter what, of course people are angry, but it's the show's job to disseminate that anger into information and you put jokes somewhere in as well. Where I'll give you an example. One of the mornings when um, when the Philando Castile non-indictment of the officer came down, that came down in the morning. I storm into the morning. There's a morning meeting where all of the writers and producers and just round table and you just talk about what's going on. A person in the corner transcribes and that kind of and from that transcription, you figure out what the structure of the show is for the day. I'm in the meeting. Man, we got to do. And he's body cam. You ready cam, to march. Don't turn body cam. <laughs> I ain't got no jokes. I'm just in there. <laughs> And then Trevor's like, you know, yes, but here's the issue. And he boom, 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 boom. And he breaks down the entire Philando Castile ordeal and it turns into a beautiful eight minute open of the show that went viral. And there wasn't a single joke in there. There was a couple of jokes at the top, but it was very measured and informative. And it had a way of keeping people's Trevor has a way of keeping people's eyes on the real goals of solving the issue instead of just the show being a place to vent and just knowing you're not alone and being angry. That's part of it, but that's not enough. When you have an opportunity every night for 30 minutes to reach people, you have an opportunity to affect what they think and how they see an issue and how they break it down. And to do that effectively, I think that you have to be calm. And I don't do a good job of being calm. You seem so calm. There's days where jokes come out of anger and it's good, like the Oscar's so white. So when Creed and Straight Outta Compton got snubbed, that was another day I came in. Man, we got to get them. And they don't even get on black cinema. All they want to do is slave movies. I bet you if, I bet you if Creed had some Negro humming in it, I bet you I bet you then they nominated. And then that's when the light bulb went off and we put out a new trailer of Creed and we put Negro spirituals under it. I remember this. <laughs> and so that was, that was the bit from that day. So there's days where anger works, but you know, I think that's the biggest difference between Trevor and I is that I'm probably too close to some of the stuff. And I think maybe with him having a bit of an outsider's perspective, it helps to kind of meter the response is something that's more strategic. Well, um, because I know uh, we've been talking forever, and I could continue to talk to you forever because uh, you're not just funny. You're also very thoughtful. But I do want to uh, wrap this up with a little segment that I invented. Too fucking lazy to name. Um, that, so I just call it this or that. Right. <laughs> you get two choices, Roy. Okay. Two choices. The most important thing you must remember about this is that the fate of the world depends on your answers. So no pressure. 
Okay. Thank don't you. be trying to don't, don't, close look, my eyes. To you close your eyes. Okay. Look, don't don't try to do like other people try to sneak in a third choice. You got two choices. All right. This or that. Two this choices. That. I'm ready. Okay. You ready? I'm ready. Sugar or salt on grits? Salt. Ooh. Who will put sugar on? Ugh. <laughs> you from Alabama, dude? Cream of wheat a, ass. A lot of y'all Alabamians do that. Oh, salt. Okay. We all die at fifty. All right. Cool. Uh, beef or pork ribs? Pork, but beef is better, but only when done right. I've had too many beef ribs that were trash, so I'm very hesitant. So you're going rib. with pork? Just going, for going with that swine? <laughs> yeah, that pork. That pork. All right, Ryu or Guile? Guile. Ooh, because you... Guile would give you life advice after he beat you. God, God would beat you, you'd die in Street Fighter, and then he would say, go home and be a family man. That's a man that, that cares about you. It is. Uh, he cares about you after you whip your ass. Tropical Punch or Cherry? Tropical Punch. Mm. Raw or Delirious? Raw. The number one Negro question, I think, which to me defines your blackness. That's how I'm setting this next one up. Off the Wall or Thriller? Thriller. Damn, Roy. It's one answer, dog. That ain't the answer. The answer's Thriller. off the wall. It's always off the wall. Oh, Roy. Oh, we were doing yes, so tiger. well. He was next to a tiger. We were doing so well. Thriller? Really? Yes. <laughs> Do you understand how amazing that Thriller video was? He was on a date, turned into a werewolf, turned back into a regular person, and she still went out with him. That's gangster. You got to respect that. The ancestors rolling in their graves right now. He did not a baby on that album. He did. And, and Moonwalk. Says that I'm the one. The kid is not my son. And then Moonwalked. And then Moonwalked. And, and the little cubes lit up. <laughs> and that was In the that. ghetto. Michael Jackson was making the sidewalk light up in the ghetto. I hear you. Those are videos, right? It's off the wall. It's off the wall, man. So we're going to end this podcast on tension? Yes, exactly. Because you deserve it for that answer. I don't expect that from a wildcat. <laughs> what? <laughs> uh, anyway, well, Roy, look, much success to you. Um, keep making us laugh. Keep Thank making you, us think. Um, how many? So you got 10 episodes of CSE. Chicken, yeah, the uh, coalition is done right the co- now. Season one's done? Season one is done. 10 okay. episodes. They're on my Twitter. All just right. Go yeah. find them. Check them out. Uh, what's your Twitter handle? Uh, it's just, just Roy, Roy, Roy just, Wood Jr. Yeah, Roy right? Wood Jr. Mm-hmm. That's me on everything. Put an at sign or a dot com behind it. See, That's real me. simple. Not, and I, You're not one of those that on Facebook is like simply delicious Roy Wood Jr. Underscore whatever. <laughs> I, like, I have a fan page on Facebook that people can find me at, but my personal page, I had to flip the name because it's a little too much MAGA MAGA action in my inbox. So I, I understand. And protect the fan. No, I'm just amazed that when people on Facebook, you know, some people I like went to high school with or other people, it's just like uh the diva Keisha. Yeah, like, <laughs> Keisha, I'm so lovely, Jenkins. It's like oh, people. Just whatever always, affirmations they need. You're right. This you gotta speak it into existence <laughs> and sometimes they put don't it be in your lovely Facebook. though. They be ugly. <laughs> he said that I didn't. <laughs> anyway, Roy is getting out of here, but I'm not done. Y'all know what's next. Final segment. Fuck it, I'm bothered. (music) 
When it comes to attending events, I am usually team. I don't give a fuck. I never, ever, 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 ever suffer from FOMO, which for the uninitiated means fear of missing out. But man, I came down with a serious case of FOMO when I saw all the wonderful pictures and videos and coverage of the opening of Tyler Perry's brand new studio. My bad. I I didn't mean to downplay it. Tyler Perry's brand new empire, because this studio stretches 330 acres in Atlanta, Georgia. So basically half the size of that damn airport. No, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Uh, But fuck it. I'm bothered. I wasn't invited. Did y'all see the number of beautiful, successful, wonderful, uplifting, historic black people that were at this grand opening? I swear the only black people that weren't there were me and Jesus. I mean, all the one name faves were there. Oprah, Ava, Beyonce, Whoopi, Denzel, Jay-Z, Will, Jada, Viola. I was wondering why on Saturday I didn't see any black people in L.A., Uh, But on the real, what Tyler Perry has done is historic. His story is really the American dream. He's the first black person to own a major studio outright. And he did it outside of Hollywood's ecosystem. Hollywood wasn't messing with Medea. He showed that there was a black audience that was being ignored, underserved and undervalued. He showed black people were a desirable, reliable, dependable movie market long before they realized that black people were watching movies after the success of Black Panther. Now, I don't care if you never care for Medea. I don't care if you've never seen Medea robs a bank or Medea does her taxes or Medea does the Dougie. You cannot argue with his success. You have to admire what he's built. So salute to you, Tyler Perry. But damn, you couldn't hook a sister up with like a general admission ticket. I couldn't have entered a raffle, sold some candy or something just to get in. But I know you got me next time, though, right? Right? Stay unbothered. Jamel Hill is Unbothered is produced by Spotify Studios and Unbothered Inc. and recorded and edited by Rich Burner and Cadence 13. Ashley Van Horn is our head of talent. Evan Dick is our executive producer. Jesse Burton is the executive producer for Spotify. And Denise Holly is the program manager. Our theme music is provided by Corey Greenleaf and Ben Darwish. You can find more from me on Twitter and Instagram at Jamel Hill. Hold up. 